0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times.
1: Hello, I'm Grace Ho, opinion editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times that takes a hard look at social and political issues of the day. This is part two of my previous conversation where we look at how much Singaporeans need for a basic standard of living. In this episode, we discuss how social policies have evolved in Singapore and the recent budget announcements. In the studio with me today, our Associate Professor Tio Yoyen, Associate Professor at the School of Social Sciences, Nanyang Technological University. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Grace.
1: We also have Dr. Eun Kok Ho, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Case Study Unit at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Great to have you on too.
0: Hi, Grace.
1: Right. And on the subject of policies and subsidies increasing, I mean, I'd like to kind of take a look at social policies and recent budget announcements. Quite a lot has happened in the budget announcements um, from expanding the progressive wage model across more sectors and jobs to accreditation through the progressive wage mark, um, the progressive wage credit scheme, where... Employers who raise the pay of lower-wage workers uh, get government co-funding. So all of these taken together, is set to cover about 94% of full-time lower-wage workers. And then you take this together with workfare and you know, incomes of lower-wage workers should grow faster than median wage growth in the next 10 years. And, and I think you've previously mentioned that the progressive wage levels are too low. Would you say that the latest budget as well as other moves have sort of resolved this
0: problem. Yeah, you're right. This has been a big year in terms of uh, wage interventions. And and, uh, in particular, the announcements related to the progressive wage model um, is a a huge move, uh, mainly in terms of extending coverage. So this, of course, very well will lead to better wages for, for some of the most economically vulnerable workers. And what's interesting is also, I think, that Um, there is much more urgency and and impetus uh, behind improving uh, wage conditions um, than we we have seen for some time. And and in particular, I've been very struck by by significant shifts in the narrative, in the way we talk about low wages. And in some senses, uh, some of the things we are now hearing are very much critics' arguments, but but now now becoming kind of mainstream policy discourse. this includes, for example, the idea that low-wage workers need to gain ground with the median. The idea that uh, the current gap between our lowest wages and the median wage is wider than in other advanced uh, economies. Uh, this is an interesting way to frame the issue because it is about wage distribution. right? something we, we don't often think about and, and don't talk about in, enough. right? So, so that's the first one. The second has been the acknowledgement that there are limits to productivity growth in many low-wage jobs. Uh, Again, this is extremely significant given our historical argument that uh, if you set up artificial wage floors that do not match improvements in productivity, then you will affect employment. That productivity gain has to be the guiding metric. To all wage interventions. So this acknowledgement that in some jobs, particularly low-wage manual jobs, there are sometimes limits to productivity growth and we have to, to recognize that. So wage growth, if you want to improve the wage conditions for, for in some of these jobs, then it has to overtake productivity. Extremely significant acknowledgement. And the third one is that uh, people, consumers, are willing to pay more for goods and services something we we also used to be quite jittery about right so if you pay workers more who's going to pay for it but now we say no we've studied the issue people are okay to pay more so on top of kind of the substantive policy changes i think the the framing and the thinking behind uh the low wages uh, has been has been very interesting um we, we welcome these changes as i think all observers uh, and advocates in this area do Uh, But I think there is more to do, right? Certainly the rates matter a lot. Uh, The existing PWM rates are definitely too low, right? And and a a simple comparison with MIS budgets will make that very clear. Uh, New ones are are in the pipeline, but they are not all announced yet. In our study, uh, we calculated uh, based on what households need that a reasonable living wage is $2,906, 2906. We think this is a reasonable level uh, because actual median work income in 2020 uh, is in fact 56% more than this, right? And in November last year, there was an announcement that the basic monthly wage for security officers on the lowest rung of the PWM for security workers will increase, right? It's scheduled to increase from 1,650 in 2023 to 3,530 by 2028. That's 3,530 first round on the PWM wage ladder for security officers. This is a massive move, uh, and it far outstrips what we are proposing as a reasonable living wage of 2,906, even with, with, uh, assumption of inflation. So this is a great start for the security sector where we know there's been a huge demand for, for, for people, uh, for manpower. So it's a, it's a, it's a good start. We, we need to keep our eye on the rates, uh, that will be announced for the other sectors. A lot of the discussion has been about how to share the higher labour costs uh, that PWM will introduce. So uh, there have already been announcements about direct government support in the initial years. And then, of course, also higher prices for, for consumers. I think doing MIS also draws our attention to the fact that the cost of public services can make a big difference right? Because the cost of public services, things like housing, education, and care, which form a huge component in the MIS budget, they affect how much wage is needed, in a sense, right? When some of these essential public services uh, that are now fairly expensive become much more affordable, then there isn't such a huge pressure to push up wages that employers have to pay, right? So, so that has to be taken, has to be taken into consideration as well. Um, of course, we know that a uh, universal legal minimum wage uh, has been rejected repeatedly by policymakers. It's not something they will consider. Um, one way to look at it is that if PWM is comprehensive and it doesn't matter what you call it, right it achieves the same effect. That is true to some extent, but the PWM is still not universal, and that is where it's different from minimum wage. In terms of coverage. There are still gaps where we say we will count our market forces and exhortation, uh, so it's different from a minimum wage in that sense. So for example, again, only outsourced cleaning and landscape jobs are included, not in-house employees. So, so there are some of these gaps uh, within PWM. Uh, compared to a legal universal minimum, uh, there is also an issue of consistency right, with the PWM. Of course, it allows flexibility to respond to, to different industry conditions. But from a living standards point of view, having different wage levels across different sectors is a form of consistency and will mean that some workers will fare better than others. And it's still possible that in some sectors, even with PWM, people may not uh, earn enough. Uh, finally, I, I hope we will also at some point be able to think seriously about the wage and work conditions of migrant workers, uh, who are of course entirely left out of the PWM framework.
1: Right. So we've covered this big piece on wages, but what about the other big piece, which is transfers and subsidies for children compared to minimum income standard budgets? And you know, and you mentioned about framing, right? So it's not just about the amounts, but also the way in which they're delivered, the conceptualization from early childhood, like baby bonus and preschool um all the way to tertiary levels what's your take on that
0: one of the most interesting findings uh to the team when we were doing the analysis was to see how the child's budget varies by age we wanted to know how much a child cost uh and whether and how that cost changes over uh, over the child's uh, initial 18 or 19 years right and what we found is that the child's budget does vary depending on the age uh but not linearly so, meaning in different age groups, the, the costs associated with the child in the household, uh, they, they are different, um, but they don't always vary. They don't vary in one consistent direction. So, although care costs are lower as children grow up, so infant care is, is of course, famously expensive, right? And then once uh, the child is of secondary school age, that there is essentially no formal care costs. But then some other costs will increase with age, such as food, clothing and social participation, right? Because teens have friends, whereas babies don't. So, so the child age, uh, 19 to 25 years old, adds the most to the household budget, primarily due to the higher cost of tertiary education and the cost of social participation compared to younger children, so going out with friends and so on. On the whole, the budget variations uh, depend heavily on the cost of education and care which dominate the the expenses associated with children. At the same time, the the current regime of support for children's education and care, it resembles a, a wedge. We say this in our report because it tapers off very sharply for older children, meaning that the income limits for means testing, as well as the generosity of the support for children, both of these things tighten as children grow up. Right? So a reminder again, children's costs uh, do not vary linearly, but support tapers off as children grow grow up. So as a result, financial pressures, I think, will feel heavier to parents as their children uh, grow up. And in our focus group discussions, uh, we include, of course, parents, but also young people. Um, so the youngest age group we included among our participants were, were uh, people aged nineteen to twenty-five. Both parents and youths were were very keenly aware of the the many financial demands that households face, and and of people's uh, kind of unequal capacities to meet these demands. They they spoke quite candidly, um, and and sometimes with a with some some anxiety, right? That they believe for some households there will be a gap between what they need and what they will be able to achieve in reality. So some of the schemes that have been ramped up in the latest budget, such as Uplift, Start, and so on, those sort of professional and community support services, they they are helpful for families that need them. Uh, As are financial resources. So the two things are not substitutes. So professional support services are a different thing than financial support, and the two do do not substitute for for each other. Uh, Not all low-income families need parenting support and advice, but all low-income families are experiencing financial difficulties. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode... Get back
1: to my conversation with Dr. Ngoc Ho and Associate Professor Chiu Yu Yan. Know, moving on to, I mean, the um, the needs of single parents, which I think both of you have been involved in earlier conversations on. You've mentioned the the gendered nature of these needs, which tend to fall more heavily on single mothers. Do you think that more can be done because there also have been steps to? allow more flexibility for, say, unmarried parents, you know, to buy flats and non-mature estates? I mean, what else, you know, should be on the cards?
2: Yeah, let me first start by talking about our findings around gender, um, because we did pay attention to what basic needs are for men and what basic needs are for women, and we took, took into account that uh, the two may have slightly different needs. And although we did find our participants did tell us about some variations in the kinds of things that they need, right, makeup versus shavers, for example, overall, what we found and the budgets we ended up with was that the basic needs of men and women are quite similar in cost. On average, however, women's capacity for meeting MIS levels, minimum income standards levels, are lower than those of men. Uh, because in general, women earn less than men, and in general, women are in the labour market continuously less so than men. So this inequality is an area of concern, that the needs are very similar, the the cost of the needs are very similar, but the capacity to um, earn the income to meet those needs are different. This partly has to do, as I said, with women's labour force participation, and it partly has to do with differential wages. And one reason for these differences is this, that although in Singapore over the past decades, we've seen narrowing in gaps in terms of educational attainment between boys and girls, young women and young men, and we also see women are entering the labour force as wage earners at a higher rate than before, but despite all this, we continue to see significant unevenness in terms of division of labour in the domestic sphere. So, when it comes to household and familial roles and responsibilities, women take on wider and deeper roles than men yeah, when it comes to taking care of housework, children, the elderly, disabled, etc. So, this has led to women dropping out of the workforce much earlier than men do. And it's also led to more women than men, on average, taking on part-time jobs more often or having more interrupted careers, and so this has direct effects on their current income and also on their long-term savings. And so this is a this is a major point of concern. Now, you asked, so what can be done here? I think when we discuss uh, wages and wage inequalities, the reason I bring up domestic. Uh, uneven division of labor is because work and care needs cannot be separated, right? And these are both really important components of people's actual lives. Care needs, how it is fulfilled, who does it? This is a very important question for society to sort out. And what that means is that we need to think about the improvement of care infrastructure paid services and facilities. We need to think about subsidies for services so that everyone can access them equally. We need to think about paid leave from work. And we also need to think about direct payment to caregivers, given that this is such a long-term challenge that we will face. And given that care needs are a very important component of human life, of human society. Um, Coming to single parents, most of whom are women, Uh, single parents face even more profound challenges. And our focus group discussions really revealed this in a very palpable way. So we um, we had focus group discussions that were centered around single parent households. And so this is how we could capture that among single parents in particular, there was a much more profound sense that they need to cut back and to live with not meeting certain needs. And in particular, parents often talk about how they strategize to cut back on their own individual needs in order to meet their children's needs first. Yeah. So there's a level um, at which I think single parents um, have to forego certain things for themselves in order to prioritize their parents. Among our single parent groups, we also heard them speak with a lot more anxiety because there is this sense that they are more insecure, that they have to, you know, be wage earners, caregivers, and that if anything happens to them, you know, um, they they have less of a buffer. Housing is, is important, and I'll think Koho will have more to say about the housing piece in particular.
0: Yeah we were concerned about housing costs uh, because as mentioned, it is uh, one of the largest items on the, on the budget. And here uh, the situation is very different for single versus uh, married parents. And it largely has to do with uh, discrimination uh, within public housing policy against single uh, so-called never married parents. Um, We we find in our calculations that the the differential treatment in housing policy in effect creates a a housing penalty, what amounts to a housing penalty um, uh, and and really jacks up the the housing costs for for single parents. very specifically, there are certain barriers uh, to to accessing public housing for them. For example, they are only allowed to purchase two room BTO flats in non mature estates, uh, or resale flats from the age of thirty five. So, based on the housing needs that participants said were basic, uh, in order to to achieve that housing standard, but within Singapore's public housing rules, we had to assume open market rental up to the age of 35 uh, when they purchase a resale flat because uh two-room flats are not big enough for, for, for a single parent with, with two children. So based on those uh, assumptions and our calculations, uh, we found that just this kind of differential treatment in the rules uh, doubles the housing costs, doubles uh, compared to partnered with the or divorced parents, and final housing costs for single parents, uh, come up to about thirty-seven percent of their total household budget. But this significant housing penalty, uh, just because of uh, partnership status, I think raises serious questions, uh, both about housing security and the fair distribution of public resources.
1: Right. So over the years, you know, as as you've mentioned, we've seen a shift in thinking about some of these minimum protections and how they can be better shared by society instead of getting individuals to bear the burden themselves. And you've seen quite a bit of that in this year's budget, you know, in terms of framing the government measures as a first step in a multi-year plan to renew and refresh the social compact uh, in Singapore. And um, the finance minister, Lawrence Wong, later said that the 4G ministers had been discussing these issues and have some ideas about the additional steps that the government might want to take. And you know, with these in mind, um, obviously the shape and form is still to be determined, but what is your wish list for a fairer and more inclusive Singapore if you could you know have a unlimited wish list?
0: Wow, unlimited wish list. <laughs> uh, we can we can think about I think substantive policy concerns as well as the de- uh, the way we do policy, right so the policy making process, the way we make decisions. And, and I think the Minimum Income Standard study is a very clear example of how um, benchmarks are, are really important um, in the way it helps us to, to see how well people are doing, whether policies are effective and, and what more needs to be done. Right? So if we take seriously our commitments to everyone achieving a decent standard of living in Singapore, then I think it doesn't, it's not enough. It's not good enough to say that we won't define that line, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's a line that matters, then, then we need to draw it, right? So setting standards and baselines, I think will be a critical part of strengthening our social compact. It signals commitment. Uh, it is empirically, it provides a, a useful empirical reference for actual policy making and when there is achievement. right? Benchmarks are also an excellent way to, to demonstrate achievement.
2: And yourself, Prof. Um, I think in terms of the areas of policy that our report allows us to draw greater attention to, there are four. One is regarding wages and wage inequalities. And as we've already talked about today, earlier, you know, setting a, a living wage standard, a, a standard at which a standard below which no one should fall in Singapore today. I think that's really important. And um, this is particularly important, I think, in a society like, like ours where work... Wage work is seen as very important, is valued by both policymakers as well as ordinary citizens. And being able to meet needs through wages is very important for people's sense of independence and, and sense of dignity. So wages is one area. Second is housing and housing discrimination. As Scott Ho has also mentioned when we're talking about single parents, um, I think this is an area where um, policy needs to focus attention um, or focus attention on removing discriminatory practices. And while home ownership, of course, is is still or has been an ideal historically, and uh, still meets a lot of needs for a lot of people rental housing and the quality of rental housing also needs attention because the reality is also that many people live in rental housing and people living in rental housing have basic needs around space and privacy their children have needs around having some uh, space to do their their work you know to have friends over etc right those are all important needs that also should be fulfilled for rental housing dwellers Education and care is also really important. That makes up a big part of household budgets. And it's also the thing that's very, that weighs really heavily on parents' minds. This is something that ca- they care about really deeply. yeah. And in this area, high-quality public services that are genuinely accessible to all, um, adequate financial support for everyone, Support for parents to make choices to be workers or carers or some combination of that, and you know, with changes over the life course, our policies should allow for those kinds of choices. Yeah, to allow people to to make the best um, choices and decisions for their family's needs. Finally, poverty. Um, The research that we did. Did reveal also when we compared the minimum income standard budgets to the household incomes, yeah, uh, that there are a concerning number of households in Singapore today who are not meeting, who are not making income to meet basic need levels. So more needs to be done also for the lowest income among Singaporeans.
1: And on that note, thank you, Dr. Ng, for coming on our show. Thank you very much. And Prof Tio, it was great to have you on too.
2: It was great to be here. Thank you, Grace. And that's a
1: wrap for In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below.
0: That was a podcast by The Straits Times.